Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm a newbie. I'm a rookie. And given what a geek I am, what a nerd I am, it's kind of astonishing that I didn't climb aboard the Doctor Who train a long time ago. Actually, there's no train. There's something called the TARDIS. Anyway, until about, I don't know, 24 hours ago, I hadn't even watched one episode. Uh, I've binged on as many as I can because obviously there's big news in the Doctor Who universe. The current and 13th ever Doctor Who is a woman. Uh, her first season is coming to an end. We could really do a nose about this because it turns out none of our nose panelists know anything about Doctor Who and probably weren't as willing to get ready as I was. I'm kind of in love with Jodie Whittaker, the new Doctor Who, but I'm sure there are more important things to say than that. Right, that's the music from Doctor Who, but there's a good chance you don't know that because there's a lot of people who don't know anything about Doctor Who. And I would say 24 to 36 hours ago, I was one of them. I, I, I suppose that means I'm still one of them because there's a, a quite a big gulp uh, to upload with Doctor Who, uh, this will, as we'll tell you uh, here today. Now, the reason you should stay with us, even if you've never, maybe especially if you've never climbed on to the Doctor Who TARDIS train, uh, is that maybe you should, and you shouldn't try to do it, I think, unassisted. Uh, so we're going to try to explain to you the very special thing that's going on this season, but also we're also going to explain all 842 episodes, one by one to you. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but we'll try to give you a little sense of the history of it and what's going on with it. And to do that, so it turned out, I mean, ordinarily we would do this on the nose as normally constituted. It turns out none of the regular nose panelists, of which we have, like up in your heart, for what do we have, 15, 16, something like that, down in New Haven, even more. Nobody knew anything about the uh, about the about Doctor Who. So, But if, then I was doing The Wheelhouse, a different show, with Susan Bigelow, and she starts talking about Doctor Who, and I'm thinking, oh, problem solved. So Susan Bigelow, a librarian, columnist for CT News Junkie, uh, and a science fiction and fantasy novelist, all of those things. She's here in studio with me, and then joining us through the miracle of Skype, uh, Josh Jackson is the editor-in-chief of Paste Magazine, and he's been doing weekly recaps of this very special season involving the 13th Doctor Who uh, as a sort of epistol, epistolary, I can never say that word, epistolary dialogue with his colleague uh, Matt Brennan uh, at Paste. And so um, maybe before I get them talking, uh, let's give you the big news that you already know. I mean, I think everybody knows this, that the 13th Doctor Who is a lady person. Uh, so let's uh, meet her. She's played by uh, Jodie Whittaker, an absolutely terrific uh, actress. And I think maybe the thing, or actor, I think you say now, uh, I think the other thing that you, you need to know here is that so Doctor Who, this is from the very first episode of this season, Doctor Who is kind of waking up 
uh, after another regeneration. And apparently, Doctor Who is not really pre-briefed on how he or she or it is going to regenerate. Doctor Who comes back in different bodies. So uh, you're kind of seeing, hearing Doctor Who put things together in real time as he's surrounded by, or she's surrounded by, some regular old earthlings. Hold on there, please, madam. I need you to do as I say. This could be a potential crime Why scene. Why call me madam? Because you're a woman. Am I? Does it suit me? What? Oh, yeah. I remember. Sorry, half an hour ago, I was a white-haired Scotsman. When's the next train due? This is the last one back. But the doors are locked. How did you both get in? Driver's window was smashed in. What's your name? PC Khan, Hallamshire Police. Name, not title. Yasmin Khan. Yas, to my friends. Can I have your name, please? When I can remember it. You don't know your own name? Of course I know it. Just can't remember it. It's right there on the tip of my... What's that? Tongue. Tongue! Smart boy, biology. What did she call you? Ryan? Yeah, Ryan Sinclair. Good name. Are you a doctor, Ryan? No. Shame. I'm looking for a doctor. Of course, she doesn't know she is a doctor. So I'm going to think I'm going to start with both of you guests here explaining a little bit uh, about uh, your relationship uh, to Doctor Who. I should say also, uh, although, as usual, the news today is produced by Jonathan McNichol, we didn't then discovered a Doctor Who file, a Whovian, uh, in our own midst, which is a uh, uh, Golden Globe-nominated um, director and digital editor, Carlos Mejia, uh, from our own staff. So he's co-producing today's show. Uh, that should not go unnoticed. And we have a little bit more time for you and your phone calls, I think, today. 860-275-7266. I think it would be good to do, too, because the people have such relationships with this show. 860-275-7266. So, Susan, I'm going to start with you. Uh, how long have you been, been at this game? So the first thing I'll say, uh, because I don't want Doctor Who fans to yell at you, um, the name of the character is actually not Doctor Who. That's right, just the Doctor. It's the Doctor. Um, and that's something that... A lot of Doctor Who fans get really, really upset about. Doctor Who fans are going to yell at me by the end of the show anyway. I'm oh, going to yes. make about 18 mistakes. Yes. No, yeah. that's absolutely true. Uh, it's fine. Uh, there's so many different levels of fandom. There's people who watch the new series, which started in 2005. There's people who have been fans of it since, I don't know, 1963 when it first started. Uh, and there's people who just jumped into it this year. So there's tons of different levels of it. I got into the show... Um, my first episode that I saw was, I saw it maybe like 2006, 2007. The new series had been going on for a little while at that point. I saw um, an episode called The Empty Child, which is set uh, in World War II Britain. It's set in London during the Blitz, as a surprising number of Doctor Who episodes are. Um, and it was, it's this sort of creepy story about this kid who's got a gas mask on and keeps wandering around London asking people if they are his mummy. Um, and that was the first one that I saw. It was fantastic. I really liked it. Uh, and I wanted to see more of it. I knew that the series was out there, but I hadn't actually watched it at that point. So um, went back, started watching the new series with the ninth Doctor, who was Christopher Eccleston, um, and then the tenth Doctor, who's David Tennant. And then we caught up to that, uh, my wife and I, and then we decided we were going to try and go back and watch the old ones, uh, which we tried to do. Uh, and we watched... A decent number of them before we kind of ran out of steam. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a lot. Doctor Who is immense. And the or classic series, which ran from 1963 to, I think, 1989, I think I want to say, um, that is such a different show in a lot of ways. 
the new and the old feels very different. The character is theoretically the same, but the production values are different. The pacing is very different because it was a serialized show back then. So they had to fill like a lot more time as a lot of it's very drawn out. And I, be- uh, I believe it also started as kind of British educational television too. It was sort of, uh, you know, it was a different kind of show that way too. It kind of was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, it was supposed to be like a science fiction fun little show for kids. With that kind of, I get there was like some science stuff kind of <laughs> involved a little bit, but no, it was it was like a little half hour serialized adventure, uh, and so of course it just there'd be like two or four, or sometimes six or eight or even twelve mm. episodes of the same story, and sometimes but, it would really drag. Yeah, but very low tech and you know not a little bit closer to the way the like the earliest Star Trek, but not even that, oh much that worse than that. Model. Yeah. So um, Josh, I want to go over to you right now too. Uh, tell tell me your uh, Who Odyssey here. Yeah, so I started watching the new series in 2005 when it came on. Um, I was not as brave to try to go back and watch the old ones. I I remembered them from my childhood. I I had seen some and uh, had never really gotten into it. And it's it it feels daunting to even even try to go back. But I have I've watched all the new episodes. Um, I've been writing about the show this season. I've gotten to uh, interview um, both the, the new um, showrunner, Chris Chibnall, and uh, his predecessor, Stephen Moffat, for Stories and Paste. And I've been an evangelist for the show. I think it's just been such – it has such a sense of fun to it that is unlike a lot of science fiction that, that takes itself very seriously. Um, and uh, I, I've – I particularly like this season with Jodie Whittaker. Um, it, Doctor Who has the ability to reinvent itself every few years with with new main characters, new uh, cast surrounding them, and um, Jodie Whittaker was just, I think, the perfect choice here. So we should say also that people, and I think if people do call in here, you're going to see this, 860-275-7266. They tend to imprint like like baby ducks on certain Doctor Whos, or doctors, sorry, doctors. Uh, maybe not the first one they saw, maybe it was the second one somehow. The first one was like the, you know, the amuse-bouche or something. Um, so, but somebody will call up today who thinks it's all just been a huge sham since Tom Baker stopped being a doctor, uh, the doctor, and that he of the stripey scarf uh, back, I I think what we're on 1980 or so. So uh, I want to ask both of you this, uh, Josh. You have the floor right now. Do you have a sort of quintessential doctor? Is there one one of these that is above all others for you? Uh, yeah, I mean David Tennant is, I think, still the uh, the high water mark that that uh, all new doctors have to to try to to match. Um, his his doctor had all of the energy and enthusiasm but also there was there was a, an emotional depth um and that which was helped a lot by by storylines he had companions who he lost companions who he bonded with um in in wonderful ways and uh he's just a phenomenal actor as well so uh, to me, uh, yes, the Tenth Doctor is the best Doctor. All right, actually, while while we're at it, just let's hear a little clip of that Tenth Doctor. This is a David Tennant, known for lots of other stuff, and we can talk about that. Even if I change, it feels like dying. Everything I am dies. Some new man goes sauntering away. And I'm dead. What? 
sorry, but I had to. Look, can't you make her better? Stop it. No, but you're so clever. Can't you bring her memory back? Look, just go to her now. Go on, just run across the street. Go up and say hello. If she ever remembers me, her mind will burn and she will die. All right, so Susan Bigelow, you get to name... We can come back to David Tennant in a second. You get to name your quintessential doctor. The first one I saw was Christopher Eccleston, and I kind of I did imprint on him, um, even though I, I love David Tennant. And I love that scene that you just played um, is one of my favorite David Tennant runs, which is uh, David Tennant as the doctor, and the companion was Catherine Tate as Donna Noble, uh, which I thought was... They are so much fun together, uh, just because... That particular combination, uh, Catherine Tate is hilarious. Uh, they played off each other really well. Um, I think that they're great. But uh, Christopher Eccleston just embodied the Doctor for me in so many ways. And a lot of people really do imprint on their first Doctor. Um, and you always compare the, the the following Doctors to them, sometimes positively and sometimes negatively. You know, um, there's so much that I want to say and ask about this, but there are also other kinds of things we need to flesh out for people. So you just used the word companion. Uh, So we better explain that, too. I don't know. Josh, do you want to explain the notion of companion here? Yeah. So the doctor, while he uh, is an alien on our planet, um, has a special fondness for humans and and humanity and – sort of chooses uh, his traveling companions or, or is sort of thrust together with his traveling companions. And uh, that pretty much makes up the cast of the show for the year because these are the people who uh, accompany him on adventures. Um, it, it gives him someone to protect, someone to ground him. And there have been many wonderful companions um, throughout the, the course of the show I, I do think my favorite is actually uh, Catherine Tate, who, who was just mentioned. Uh, as Donna, Donna Noble, you had such great chemistry there. And, and that is, that's an important part of the show is, is the chemistry between the doctor, um, usually plat- platonic and um, uh, just a, a great deep friendship um, with, with whoever comes along on his adventures. Well, there will be arguments about uh, who's the best doctor, but there are also arguments about who's the best companion. Uh, Susan, you saw on my Facebook page an argument break out about whether Donna sucks or whether Donna is oh, great. Yeah. And, uh, Donna is is really controversial. <laughs> um. she, she's, a, she's a divider, not a uniter. Oh, yes. yes. Well, she's, she's, a, she's an abrasive personality, um, particularly when uh, the doctor first meets her. Um, she's sort of an office gossip and... Um, but it, it really gave a lot of um, narrative arc, gave a lot of growth to her character over time. You just came to love this this wacky individual. And Catherine Tate is is a phenomenal actress in her own right. Well, Susan, I have a question, and it really is a question. I haven't watched enough to know what I'm talking about. But, so, but I did watch enough to know. So in 2005, the series comes back after a long hiatus. It's been away, although there's like constantly people just messing about with other kinds of Doctor Who projects. There's just no end of Doctor Who projects. So, you know, uh, my friend Brian Lockhart from Hearst Newspapers was tweeting me about like these audible book oh, yeah. things that there's just like everything is happening. But anyway, 2005, it comes back. Christopher... Eccleston is the new Doctor Who, and he pairs up with a companion named Rose. And Rose is explicitly and obviously working class British. She is literally a shop girl at Harrods. Uh, and she has a very working class family, including this mum who's uh, quite a character. And, and 
And then, so I don't have too much, a lot of experience with Doctor Who, but I'm also noticing this season, first of all, there's three companions, which is controversial in and of itself. Um, All of them are working to middle class, retired bus driver. Uh, One of them's a a cop, a low level ranking uh, cop. Um, I think the other one's having trouble. Oh, he's working in a warehouse at the beginning. Right. So, and I feel like, you know, Britain is so saturated with class issues. And I'm wondering if this is part of the Doctor Who thing. that Because Doctor Who is constantly telling these people not only that they can do certain things, but they have to do them right now. <laughs> you know, things that seem to ex- extend way beyond their core competencies. And uh, is that kind of a recurrent thing? I haven't seen enough of the other ones to know. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, first off, the, the whole class thing is, is fascinating. Um, Doctor Who is always kind of tried to get people um, from the middle and lower classes, which is is great. And in Britain, that means a lot more than it does here. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you're actually starting to see uh, some racial and gender diversity uh, in the main cast as well, and, and as well as age diversity, which is kind of interesting. Having companions who are older than the doctor is pretty rare. Yeah. It almost but never there's, happens. There's a grandpa this year. Yes, this exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think... I think that that's great. And that's, of course, that's going to be controversial uh, because there's always going to be angry fans who don't like one thing or another. Um, but, yeah, there's there's always the theme in Doctor Who that people can do all kinds of things when you push them, mm-hmm. that, that you can be so much more than what you are. Uh, you can become somebody so much better. Mm-hmm. And the growth of the companions over the long term, over the season or however long they stick around – is that's kind of our window into it, and that's that's sort of our aspirational thing when, when we're watching the show. Uh, we can think of ourselves as the companions who travel along with the Doctor, um, and we could see ourselves being like, yes, I could grow this way too. And that's that's such a powerful thing, and it's such a powerful in. Right. Even the Doctor. I mean, Jodie Whittaker has a pronounced northern accent, as did Christopher Eccleston. Uh, there have been Scots, obviously, as well. But it isn't necessarily sort of uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. Uh, it, it's something else here. So, um, Josh, as you're looking at this season, it seems to me, once again, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but it's pretty clear that um, that the the doctor's whole raison d'etre is kind of what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding, right? That ultimately it'd be really good if you could solve a lot of problems and negotiate them out and solve them without um, a, a terrible amount of violence. Um, there, there's sort of a, a message of that kind that seems to run through the series. This season, I don't know. You you did the diary, but I, I can't look at this without seeing it as something of a rebuke of some of the values behind Brexit. I mean, people of color are so prominently featured, and it is the word alien is even toyed with a couple of different ways, uh, you know, from time to time. It obviously applies to the doctor in a certain way. Uh, I don't know. What was your read on that through the season? Yeah, and, and I think it is just a continuation of, of um, what Susan was, was talking about as far as addressing class issues. Um, right now, this season, uh, more than previous seasons, has addressed um, race and gender. And I, th- I mean, to me, that, that that is just of a piece of what the Doctor has always been about. Um, it's It's been wonderful to see uh, them address it head on in uh, episodes like the one where they go back in time to visit Rosa Parks. Um, there was an episode where they went back to see just all of the 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 pain and trauma caused by Britain um, splitting 
India and Pakistan sort of without a thought of just drawing a line and and upending uh, people's lives and and leading to just massive amounts of death there. They're 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 looking. You know, it's it's a hard look at Britain's history. Um, it is it is a quintessential British show. You know, the Doctor can travel anywhere in time and space and ends up in you know working neighborhoods in in England uh, as as much as anywhere. And to have now um, a um, uh, two two young Britons of of Pakistani and African descent um, as as two of the cast members uh, is, I think, a way for them to to address that. And and when you're when you're traveling back in time and you're not a white man, that has you can't just sort of brush that aside, uh, how people react to, to the companions, how people react to the doctor as a woman, um, is a huge part of what we've seen this season. I, the other thing that I'm noticing, um, season is that first of all, there's so many series that are clearly inspired by this or that resemble this, the slate culture gap Fest people started talking a lot about Buffy. I could totally see that. Um, uh, also there's a sort of an X-Files thing. If Muller and Scully really knew what was going on, um, and if they had a little bit more pluck instead of, I mean, you know, David Duchovny does not have a stiff upper lip. He's always kind of mopey about everything. And one of the things that I'm enjoying about this is it's about threats coming from distant corners of the galaxy. But there's this, I don't know, indefatigable, you know, they'll always be in England quality. You know, like you just, the the doctor, you know, you're a little bit afraid, but you're also, you feel like you're in good hands. I think that's true. And it is, there's a lot of British patriotism um, that comes with the show. Like the episode that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the first one that I saw, uh, Rose Tyler, the companion, is uh, wandering around London with a gigantic Union Jack uh, T-shirt on. And the whole, the, I mean, the underlying part is how resilient Britons were during the Blitz and everything. Uh, the show is also not just about Britain, but about the world as well and about our world is uh, like for a good example of this. Uh, the, the episode this season, Arachnids in the UK, featured uh, an American who was developing a hotel property, uh, and who was clearly a Donald Trump stand-in, and he he doesn't get devoured by spiders, I'm afraid. Um, but clearly, that was that was meant to be a jab at at him. Um, so they don't really shy away from from any kind of things like that at all. Let me grab a quick call here from uh, James in North Windham. Our number, 860-275-7266. Hi, James. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Good. Fire away, oh. James. You, oh, have, you okay. have the floor. Oh, okay. Great. Well, uh, listening to the show, you guys are obviously well-informed and uh, uh, good fans. And I just thought I'd mention that there is, for people who are interested, there is a Connecticut Doctor Who club. Um, we are... Uh, a fairly good-sized group. Uh, we sometimes have episode viewings. Uh, sometimes we uh, meet up at Comic-Cons for photo shoots. Um, uh, even the uh, Connecticut Renaissance Fair, uh, we've gone to there as a group. Uh, and most of us uh, cosplay quite a bit. And if anybody's interested in finding out more about it, uh, it's on Facebook. You just look under Facebook under C.T. Whovian Club. Um, and it's uh, it's a good group of people, um, and it's interesting to see just who uh, cosplays which character uh, when we get together. Uh, I bet it is. I bet it's very interesting, James. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, I'm going to restrain all kinds of impulses, uh, and we're going to come back. 
You don't understand. You will never understand. I don't understand? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Of course I understand. I mean, do you call this a war, this funny little thing? This is not a war. I fought in a bigger war than you will ever know. I did worse things than you could ever imagine. And when I close my eyes, I hear more screams than anyone could ever be able to count. I don't know what you do with all that pain. Shall I tell you where you put it? You hold it tight. Till it burns your hand. And you say this. No one else will ever have to live like this. No one else will ever have to feel this pain. Not on my watch. All right, so that's Peter Capaldi, uh, who was the, let's see, let me go backwards. He's the 12th uh, Doctor Who, uh, Peter Capaldi. You know, and one thing that I wanted to say uh, to you, Susan and Josh, I'll start with you, Susan, is most of these actors are actors that we know from someplace else, too. So Peter Capaldi's done all kinds of different work, including some of the Anthony Iannucci things. I think he's in In the Loop and stuff like that. Um, I, I'm probably omitting something. But then you go back one more from there. You get, you get Matt Smith, who very recently was Prince Philip uh, uh, and very memorably Prince Philip. On the crown, David Tennant was in Broadchurch with Jodie Whittaker, who is now uh, Doctor Who. They're both in the same series. Chris uh, Christopher Eccleston has just been in The Leftovers, where he was terrific. I mean, these are—it's kind of weird because Doctor Who is kind of its own little thing, you know, off where it is with you Whovians. But it's not as though everybody doesn't want to be in it. That's true. It's like a who's who of British actors. It's like Harry Potter that way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of crossover between people who've been in Doctor Who and people who are in Harry Potter. Um, all these great British actors get involved in this. Uh, like, for example, John Hurt played an iteration of the Doctor. He played the, the War Doctor, uh, which is sort of an interstitial Doctor that appears between the 8th and the 9th. And there was a whole thing in the 50th anniversary special. And he, of course, was amazing. He was just amazing. Um, but yeah, and... There's even people who go on to play much larger roles who appear in er, in the series itself earlier. Peter Capaldi played a, a Roman patriarch, sort of a head of a Roman family, in a an episode of Doctor Who with David Tennant and uh, and Catherine Tate. Um, and also in that episode was uh, the woman who went on to play Amy Pond, who was uh, the companion of the Eleventh Doctor, Matt Smith. So they they all kind of cycle around. Um, it is. It really is great, though. If you enjoy British actors and British TV at all, you're going to recognize people. Right. So, you know, Josh, we have to talk about uh, Jodie Whittaker. Um, I don't have like a big, huge Doctor Who canon that I have to overcome. Uh, and I'm just loving this woman. I think she's just terrific in, in, in about 18 different ways. But then I'm probably not the typical visitor to this thing. I, I don't know. How, how is Jodie doing uh, in your neck of the Doctor Who universe? I I love Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. I think um, particularly to follow up uh, Peter Capaldi, who was maybe the most dour, sarcastic, grumpy uh, uh, of the Doctors we've seen in the new era, and and to and to to follow that with with Jodie's just unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder and. Um, uh, but but still have that sense of of anger that we just we just heard from Capaldi. She's still got that that spirit and that bite. And when that comes out, 
uh, I think, oh yes, this is the doctor. This she is the doctor, and uh, so yes, I, I I give her rave reviews. Yeah, I mean not to make it too gendered, but and and not, uh, but there's a little bit of Mary Poppins in her too. The old Mary Poppins, not not the Julie Andrews uh, Mary Poppins, but in the books, you know, Mary Poppins is kind of no nonsense. Get going here, let's get moving here, uh, and but also heir to this tremendous mystical tradition. I, I kind of see a little bit of that in her. So one thing, Susan, I, I don't know if either one of you has, uh, a, if you spend enough time in the kind of world that our, our caller James was talking about, but um, one thing that I'm kind of wondering is, in general, I mean, I think I think Whovians like to argue about this and that and what's good and stuff like that. But I don't sense that they argue in the kind of vicious way that highly canonical Star Star Wars fans do. They get really upset about the introduction of some new character and then they try to destroy her on Twitter or something like that. I mean, it feels more like it's kind of, I don't know, fun just pushing the puck around a little bit. Oh, I wish it were that way. Oh, OK. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's a fa- it's a fandom and all fandoms have their toxic elements. Mm-hmm. Um when uh, when um, Martha Jones, who was the the one of the second the second companion to to uh, David Tennant, uh, and the first black companion, uh, when she started off, there was just a lot of hate coming out about that. Um, when Stephen Moffat took over from uh, Russell Davies as showrunner, uh, he often would try to engage with fans on Twitter until he he had to leave because of all of the negativity. Uh, some of it justified, some of it not directed at him, uh, and of course, there's there's a lot of fans now who are still kind of grumpy about Jodie Whittaker and about the uh, the more racially diverse and diverse cast of this season because they think it's too PC, too social justice, uh, well, completely missing the point of Doctor Who entirely, of course, uh, which we should be tolerant of each other and and pull together. Uh, no, of course there's there's toxic elements. It's it's unfortunate, <laughs> oh, but it's bad. true. Too bad. There's even, I mean, the, another part of this is you've got so many former Doctor Whos who are doctors, excuse me, who are out there in a position to criticize. Peter Davison, who I knew from All Creatures Great and Small, the James Harriet adaptations, who was a doctor, I mean, umpty billion years ago, is upset because he thinks there's too many companions. There's, three is just too many companions. So, I mean, there's even sort of, you know, nitpicking from, you know, from emerita, emeriti, I guess we would say. So, so Josh, you're in a in a very good position to get feedback from from Whovians uh, as you do these season uh, or these episode recaps uh, on a digital space. So, what's going on there? What are you running into? Well, first of all, I have to say that I, that I kind of agree that three is too many. It's been it's been hard for them to really um, develop the characters uh, as quickly as is typical when you just have one. Um, so. I've that was an interesting decision. Uh, We'll see as as it as it rolls out. But I mean, you have to look at the fact that this season premiere was the highest rated Doctor Who season premiere in uh, since the show came back in 2005. Um, There may be some toxic elements out there, but there is a lot of excitement around um, the first female Doctor, and there's a lot of women Doctor Who fans. I feel like in my own life, most of the people I know who are devoted Doctor Who fans are women. And to be able to see uh, themselves in that that role or to see somebody um, in that role who who's a woman, I, I think is just just a, a wonderful and important thing. So so, yes, there there there's always going to be negativity when when you change something that's beloved. Um, but I, th- I think the excitement has outweighed uh, those elements in, in the season. 
Okay, I, 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 now is the point where I will bring out my one, I think it's my only totally crackpot theory about Doctor Who based on a very, very short visit. I'm such a newbie, I don't have any right to have crackpot theories. But I, I think you have to sort of look at this character as either kind of a Christ figure or a humanist version of a Christ figure that, you know, I mean, being introduced to this character who is traveling the universe, trying to get some kind of social justice, probably at some considerable cost to him, her, or itself. Uh, I mean, I don't know, Josh, one reason that I'm not troubled by three companions is I'm thinking, well, it's sort of like three wise men. I, I don't know. You, you sort of get you know, groups of three uh, in, in sort of theological narratives are not necessarily uh, you know, that unusual. I mean, I'm sure that most Doctor Who fans would be grossly offended by that analogy because most science fiction fans are resolutely uh, secular humanists. But but you can you could also you can split the apple that way and say, but there is something about it. this is a savior, right? Isn't this you know? I'll let you both react to this, but um, Susan, why don't you react first? I mean, this is, it seems at least that this is a savior story to a certain degree. Well, I think of Doctor Who as a lunatic in a box who flies around the universe <laughs> in, in space and time, who has a big savior complex. Uh, I, I think. It's it's more complicated than I think than just a Christ metaphor, but oh sure I can see that there. And you know, please have crackpot theories. This is what being a Doctor Who fan is all about. Is we oh. all we love having crackpot theories about everything. Uh, we like to dissect every single episode and say, oh, was this a callback to this thing that happened 35 years ago? And um, it's yeah. So please do have those theories. I think that that's an interesting take on it. Um, I could see part of it, but again, I think there's a lot to argue there too. I don't know, Josh, do you have a crackpot theory, like an uber theory, an overarching theory? Or if you had to explain to somebody who the doctor is, you know, what would you say? Well, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some of that um, Christ-like archetype there. And, and there, particularly, there, there's been storylines where it's been fairly overt of the doctor needs to save us all. And even even in the clip you just played from from Peter Capaldi, it's more almost more godlike of not on my watch like the, the doctor is very determined uh the doctor is a little bit of a control freak and and the universe is his playground so or her playground so um yeah describing the doctor the doctor is an enthusiast is a uh loves loves to experience life has been experiencing life for for millennia and um that involves people. And so the, yes, doctor, the doctor is very much a humanist believes in humanity as, as its own, um, savior. It just needs a little pushing and prodding from time to time. And I think that's, that's the doctor is, is trying to shape and control and, and send people, uh, on, on the way to their best path. All right, we're going to take a call here. The nature of this call will probably alienate all the people who don't who are trying to figure out Doctor Who right now, but uh, that's fine. Uh, Josh from West Hartford. Hi, Josh. Ask the other Josh and Susan hey, your question. Hey, sure. What's up? I don't know. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, to the guests, and I'm I'm going to try to connect this to the current discussion. Of uh, my original question was just if you could choose a classic Doctor Who villain to come back in a new episode, uh, but I guess a better way to sort of phrase it for contemporary stuff is if you could think of a way that villain could be used um, thematically with uh, either current events or like to deepen the characters of the show, if that makes sense. 
It doesn't make any sense to me, but it might make sense to the, to the guest here. Josh, the other Josh, do you want to take that one? Sure, sure. So, so one thing about the season, and, and it's not over yet. We have we have the uh, the season finale this weekend, but we have not seen any of the classic Who villains, and there are some great classic Who villains. Um, my favorite will always be the Daleks, um, and I would love to see uh, how Jody responds to the often overwhelming odds that this race of aliens who just want to uh, exterminate everyone. Um, how, how she deals with that. So, so I would, I would love that as a way to bind, um, this group together and, and offer them something a little bit more than what they've, they've faced so far. It's, it's been a little easy breezy. Let's get a tour of the, the universe, um, on, on a field trip. And I think I think it's time to give them a, a little something more challenging. All right, release the kraken, open the hell mouth. All right, uh, Susan, how about you? I, mean, I do love the Daleks. Um, I, my my favorite though, uh, sort of classic constant Who villain is the Santarans, who is a race of people who look like baked potatoes um, and have a bizarre little uh, weakness where they have a vent on the back the sour of their necks. Yeah, no, no. Uh, they have a vent in the back of their necks where if you, if you hit it, they just fall over. They're they're extremely warlike. Um, I, I kind of want to see them come back just because they are immense fun. Um, but how, uh, how to take a Doctor Who villain and kind of relate it to what's going on in the world today? Oh, geez. I mean, there's a lot of these these um, these villains are metaphors for something like, in fact, I mean, you feel like the Doctor, the Daleks and the Cybermen who are a race of, well, Cybermen, robots who are in, interested in uh, basically like assimilating everybody. They're almost like the Borg. Um, they're all really metaphors for uh, for fascism, for uh, groupthink, for um, you know, just for following the crowd, for being warlike and aggressive and violent. Uh, all the things that the Doctor kind of stands against. Um, this season has been has been pretty interesting in that we haven't had any of those, and I believe that that's that was their intent. Mm. Uh, they wanted this to be ten standalone episodes to allow new viewers to come into the season, to come into the series without sort of throwing fifty five years of lore at them right away. Uh, I'm hoping that next season, uh, if the same bunch returns, and I hope that they do. I really I, I like the companions. I don't think that three is too many. Um, I, I like all of them. I am hoping that next season we'll see them face these kinds of things, these kinds of really, really big threats. Um, I do think that that's going to be fa- fascinating to see. All right. We have to stop there to have time for recommendations and endorsements and things like that on the other side of the break. We want to thank Josh Jackson, editor-in-chief of Paste Magazine. Uh, he's been doing weekly weekly recaps of this season's uh, episodes of Doctor Who uh, as an epistolar, I can't say it, epistolary dialogue with his colleague Matt Breden on Paste. Uh, he's got to go off and cover the Grammy nominations. I believe Carlos Mejia, the co-producer of this episode, got a Grammy nomination today. That's sort of exciting as well. Um, I do want to say, I'm joining. I'm joining. I think it's a nice combination of fear and fun. The characters on the show are often very afraid and legitimately so. Nice people die on this show. But you're also having a lot of fun. You know it's going to be fun and funny. So it's like, what could be better? All right. Uh, Susan's going to stay. We're going to do some endorsements when we get back. Uh, apparently, there's a dentist in Whoville, and you can't even Google the guy. It's very frustrating. 
Today's show was produced in the year 5 billion by Jonathan McTardis and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish first appeared in episode 502. The part of Bill Curry was played by Peter Davison. We'll be back on Monday to save the world. But for now, let's hear some endorsements. All right. Thanks also to Carlos Mejia, who co-produced this episode and turns out to be a big old nerd. He's even got a TARDIS t-shirt on today. All right. So um, we're going to do some endorsements, some recommendations. Wolfie, what I'm going to do, uh, we're going to do uh, three of the pre-tapes, and then we'll do Susan, and we'll do the other three pre-tapes, just so you know what's happening here. So what we do in these circumstances occasionally is ask our producers uh, to endorse things. Uh, and so that's what we did this time. We are going to start with a basket of adorables, uh, Carmen Baskoff and Lydia Brown, proprietors of Brown and Baskoff, private investigators. No, they are actually the producers of Where We Live on WNPR. Let's see what they are endorsing. Hi there, this is Carmen Baskoff with Lydia Brown, and we're here to endorse Sausage and Cabbage, an incredible recipe. (laughs) I know what you're thinking, but it actually is really good. Uh, One of our our mutual friends, Charlotte, uh, made this, I I guess, a meal. I don't know if it's it's not really a casserole. Do you know what it is? It's a meal. It's a meal. It's a meal. (laughs) It's food. Sure. And basically, we both had it, and... Like, I think I was having dreams about it for I days. couldn't stop thinking about <laughs> it, it for about two so weeks, good. and I made you send me the recipe. Yep. I was surprised to learn it was actually a New York Times cooking recipe. Yep. And so I took a look, and it's relatively simple. This is something that just about anyone with three hours to spare can put together. A <laughs> uh, very short list of ingredients, salt, pepper, butter, cabbage, sausage, It doesn't require you do a lot of grocery shopping in advance. Uh, The only requirement, I think, is that you are a sausage lover. I guess you don't really have to be a cabbage lover. You don't like cabbage, right, No, I really don't like cabbage. I was very dubious when I first heard we were going to be eating this because it's not my least favorite vegetable, but it's like definitely on the bottom quarter of vegetables in my book. But I think the trick is if you just put enough butter... On anything. <laughs> on anything. It's, it's really good. really delicious. Yeah, that's true. And that's definitely the case for this recipe. It's four simple steps. I won't read all of them on air right now. Uh, the best thing you can do to learn more about this delightful recipe is go to cooking.nytimes.com and type sausage and cabbage into the search box, and you will be well on your way to making a delicious dish. Do it. You won't be disappointed. You'll dream about it for a yep. long time. Wait, did she just say delicious dish? Because that did sound a little bit like delicious dish, if you know what I mean. Uh, all right, so uh, let's go from there to Scott Breedy, WNPR's politics producer. Scott's making his on-air debut right now, on, at least on WNPR, uh, with this here endorsement. There's one network show that I'm enjoying now. It's called New Amsterdam which is uh, odd because I generally don't like um, medical dramas. I mean, I haven't seen any of the 76 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. It takes place in New York in America's oldest public hospital, and it focuses on this guy who's trying to transform the public health industry, run this hospital, and, you know, treat every one of the hospital's patients at the same time. I mean, personally treat them. Um, So it's completely unrealistic, and it's generally something I would hate. But the appeal to me is it puts the hecticness of my life into perspective. You know, this guy does more in 15 minutes than I do the entire day. And the pacing of the show really, you know, emphasizes that. I also want to give a shout-out to Tyler Labine. He plays this Dr. Iggy, who's the head of the psychiatric unit at the hospital. He's easily one of the most likable characters on television. And I really appreciate the way the writers and the 
third or fourth episode, introduce viewers to the fact that, that this guy has a husband and a bunch of adopted kids. It's really cool that they presented it in a way that was low-key but, you know, really impactful. All right, Scott Breedy uh, endorsing New Amsterdam on NBC. Let's hear uh, Tucker Ives, digital producer at WNPR. As my 2018 Spotify year in review would reflect, I haven't been that great on keeping up with new music. But the Where We Live team brought in a band last year that caught my attention, the Connecticut-based group Audio Jane. And now the band is out with a new album, Letters. Much like their earlier recordings, the five-person band has filled the nine-track album with loud, layered, and intricate songs that will make for great driving music when it's a little more seasonally appropriate to roll down the windows. So, for comparison's sake, Audio Jane reminds me a bit of a broken social scene spin-off band with a good dose of Luna mixed in. And I do hope that a filmmaker catches on, because while I was listening to it, I realized that some of this music really belongs in a movie soundtrack, particularly the first track off this album, Fade Again. So, Zach Braff, where are you at? All right, Tucker Rives. Uh, so, we're going to go over to you, Susan. Uh, be uh, somewhat brisk, because I've got three more <laughs> things I'm going to get through. All right, I'm going to be a big nerd and keep with the theme of today's show by endorsing a video game about space exploration. Um, it's called No Man's Sky. It came out about a year ago, but it's recently undergone a great update uh, that makes it oh, yeah. actually playable. Um, there was a lot of controversy when it came out that it wasn't wasn't finished, and it wasn't. But So I, I recently jumped back into it. It's this great—it can be a lot of things. It can be this sort of chill exploration experience where you just fly from planet to planet. You can do all kinds of stuff. You can build little houses. You can just walk around scanning things for hours and hours. It's, it's a ton of fun, and I've been spending a lot of time doing that. It's a great way to decompress. All right. I gave that for, uh, to my son for Christmas a couple of Christmases mm. ago, so um, I'm glad to hear it's being updated. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is our show's senior producer. Brace yourselves. These are always, uh, I don't know, they're a little hair-raising usually. I'm endorsing the Presto Heat Dish Parabolic Electric Heater. I came across it while on a recent trip to Costco just before Thanksgiving. I was on my way to pick up some salmon for dinner, and I passed a display of this Presto Heat Dish. It felt so warm, and it was freezing outside. So I bought it. I probably wouldn't have bought it if I wasn't so hungry. I get cold when I'm hungry. Plus, the sun was going down, which made it even colder, and I was thinking about Thanksgiving. Our kids were coming home, and they think we keep our house too cold. Keith likes to keep it at 63. We're sort of used to it. So they loved it when they came home. Now they're back home, and I find myself still wanting the fan, so I carry it from room to room with me on cold nights. It looks like a fan, and it weighs hardly anything. You can set it up on a table or the floor and just direct it where you want it to go. It heats up instantly when you turn it on, and it cools down just as fast when you turn it off. And when you turn it on... The metal dish turns bright orange, so it not only adds heat, but it adds a little bit of light if the room is dark. And if you look at it in the dark, it kind of looks like a piece of art, and it automatically will turn off if Keith knocks it over. You can buy it at a lot of places, but I'm pretty sure it costs a lot less at Costco. That was the presto something, something, something. The headline of that particular endorsement was, Keith keeps the house too cold. All right. Everything else is just window dressing. Uh, all right. The producer, the co-producer of this episode, uh, Mr. Jonathan McPants. Uh, let's see what he's got. When I was a kid, like six or seven years old, first grade, my mom started taping David Letterman's late night show every night. And we would watch it the following afternoons when I got home from school. And one of my favorite recurring bits on, on that show, right from the very beginning, was when Letterman would just go up to the top of the building and drop stuff off the roof. 
Um, and in that same vein, I want to endorse a YouTube channel called How Ridiculous. It's these three Australian guys, and they do a bunch of different ridiculous stuff uh, on there. But my favorite episodes are the ones where they just drop stuff off of things. Um, they've got this 150-foot tower that they use uh, in Australia, and there's a 540-foot dam that they go to in Switzerland. And they'll take up bowling balls or water balloons or a recliner or a refrigerator or like a bucket of 200 potatoes. And they'll just drop them off the tower or the dam and they film it and just see what happens when the stuff lands. Sometimes they even drop like the bowling balls onto the refrigerator from 150 feet up just to see what happens. And it's never very good for the fridge and it's often not very good for the bowling balls either. There's this wonderful empty zen experience to just watching stuff fall and splatter and shatter and explode anyway it's the how ridiculous channel on youtube i would just like to say that the sentence or the phrase three australian guys doing ridiculous things contains a certain element of redundancy all right we're just going to make it kion wolf is our announcer and technical producer let's see what she is going to recommend trader joe's onion salt it's a jar full of salt kosher salt if you're into that sort of thing and um, dried onions, all sorts of onions. And it's in a jar. It's a jar of it. And you could put it on eggs, on popcorn, on oatmeal, which reminds me, savory oatmeal. Why does everybody think that oatmeal has to be sweet? It really doesn't. Try making oatmeal with garlic and cumin. Is it cumin? Cumin. And chorizo, make it really nice and red. And Trader Joe's onion salt. Oh, and if you go and get your bottle of Trader Joe's onion salt, next to it is going to be a jar of everything but the bagel seasoning blend. It's everything but the bagel in a jar, which would also go really well on savory oatmeal. Thank you. All right. That was disgusting. I mean, not the onion salt, but the oatmeal. That was horrible. Uh, that's just not good. It's not a good idea. I'm really sorry. But it was a very cute endorsement. They all were. They were great. Uh, so thanks, especially thanks to uh, our co-producers, Jonathan McPants and uh, Golden Globe-nominated Carlos Mejia, Susan Bigelow, librarian, columnist for CT News Junkie, science fiction and fantasy novelist. If you're going to be at Trader Joe's, get uh, it's the cheapest place to get pine nuts as far as I can. The people there at the nut area will take your arm off. It's like the the crowd there is very, you have to joust with them to get to the pine nuts. And also their julienne preserved sun-dried tomatoes in the jar. Those are really, really good. And what? Okay. 